From the University of Notre Dame, this is With a Side of Knowledge. I'm your host, Ted Fox. The idea behind this show is pretty simple. A university campus is a destination for all kinds of interesting people, representing all kinds of research specialties and fields of expertise. So why not invite some of these folks out to brunch? Yes, I said brunch, where we'll have an informal conversation about their work, and then I'll turn those brunches into a podcast. It's a tough job, but somebody has to do it. With the Side of Knowledge is supported by Soren's Restaurant inside Notre Dame's Morris Inn, which serves breakfast and lunch seven days a week and dinner Tuesday through Saturday. If you see us recording, feel free to stop by and say hi, preferably not when we're chewing. Augustine Fuentes is the Reverend Edmund P. Joyce CSC Professor of Anthropology and Chair of the Department of Anthropology at Notre Dame. Trained in zoology and anthropology, he is interested in both the big questions and the small details of what makes humans and our closest relatives tick, and in making sure his work is accessible to all of us who don't happen to be professional scholars. Augustine has published more than 150 peer-reviewed articles and chapters, and authored or edited 20 books, as well as a three-volume encyclopedia. Our conversation focused in large part on one of his most recent books, The Creative Spark, How Imagination Made Humans Exceptional, published by Dutton Books in 2017. Covering millions of years of human history from our booth in Sorens, he unpacked myths about the differences between men and women, about what race is and isn't, and about whether we're inherently violent creatures all the while showing why he says humans' incredible capacity for creativity is the defining element in our evolutionary journey. We also talked about dogs because, frankly, dogs are the best. Augustine Fuentes, welcome to With a Side of Knowledge. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. (laughs) So I, I wanted to start by trying to put your research in a broader context for people listening and was wondering if it would be fair to say that your book, The Creative Spark, and much of your work more generally is aimed not only at unlocking evolutionary science for a mainstream audience, but also getting people within your own discipline to maybe rethink some of the scholarly narratives we've told ourselves about the way humans have evolved. I I think that's a perfect example. I think I'll steal that and put it on my website. (laughs) This is, I think, really important, this idea that as a scholar, as a scientist, a lot of my work appears in the peer-reviewed literature and articles in jargon-laden <laughs> contexts that most people couldn't understand, uh, even those who are trained to. <laughs> right. But, but at the same time, what I really am trying to do is in both of those, in the sort of fully-on academic world and in the sort of public world, to convey ideas, themes, and contexts that are inspired by the data mm-hmm. and the analysis, but that are not beholden to traditional assumptions about the way things are. Mm-hmm. It turns out that, you know, the best thing about science is that data force change frequently. Mm-hmm. And we need to be on top of that, not only as scholars, but as communicators, as teachers, and as people who engage with the public. So when you talk about that data, what kind of tools do you use to study? You talk about it in your bio, the how and why of being human. Right. What kind of tools do you use to study that? So I think what's really fascinating about humans is that we are animals, right? Mm-hmm. We are primates. Uh, we're part of the organic world, but we're pretty distinctive, right? Mm-hmm. Everything has this fascinating trajectory. Evolution is all about continuities 
and discontinuities. Mm -hmm. And I'm particularly recently interested in the discontinuities between humans and other things. We're really pretty inconsequential in the entire panoply of life. And right. yet on this planet, we're probably one of the major forces shaping it. Right. And so that, that's a contradiction. And I'm really interested in looking at our bodies, our brains and physiologies, our behavior and our histories, our deep histories, to try to put all those things together to think with as we engage with the complexities of, of today. Racism, inequality, misogyny, mm -hmm. uh, political discourse, conflict between nation states. Right. All of that actually is connected to our deep past and to our biologies. Right. And I know one thing that was really cool, I think, and I don't know if I'm, a, I don't think I'm alone in this, but as someone looking at science from the outside looking in, I think archaeology is one thing that always intrigues all of us. And so much of what you're talking about in the creative spark is that you're looking at the fossil record and what right. can we find in the fossil record, which I think is that is archaeology. Is that kind of at the core of what you do? No, or? no, I'm not even an archaeologist. <laughs> um, but what, what's at the core of what I do is most people don't understand what anthropology is, right? right. So when you say, oh, you're an anthropologist, people either say, A, oh, like Indiana Jones. No, that's wrong. He was a My tomb <laughs> robber and should have been put in jail. Um, or they think I dig up dinosaurs. Okay, neither of those two things. What I'm really interested in, because I'm an anthropologist who studies everything about the human, but I'm very interested in those biological facets mm -hmm. as they relate to the broader human experience. Mm -hmm. And so to, to study that, I need to study bones today mm -hmm. and in the deep past, and I need to study the materials of the past, which is what most people associate with archaeology. These are the material remains of our behavior, of our thoughts, of our beliefs. Mm -hmm. So thinking about the past ecologies, the bones, the materials, and placing them in dialogue with what we know about humans today, that's the exciting part. That's, that's what I do. So in the Creative Spark, fittingly, you talk about, for humans, it's not the drive to reproduce. It's not the accumulation of power it's not even the we're compassionate towards one another that sets us apart from the other animals it's although all those are cool <laughs> interesting <laughs> things right it's our creativity that sets us apart and i know again when you hear the term creativity now we so often think of limit that to just the arts right, or something right, like that right. in terms of what you're talking about what is what is creativity so the problem with when we think about creativity is we undercut what it actually means we think of only yeah genius right. or artists right. or right. individuals it's actually not about any of those things right. uh, although creativity does show out in great art or in great individuals so creativity is the human capacity to look around at the world to see how it is to imagine wholly new possibilities mm -hmm. and to at least try to make those things right. material, to make right. them happen. And so when we think about that, if we think about creativity in that way, and it's drawing on our experiences, the experiences of others, our connections, our capacities, and doing that mm -hmm. to make our imaginations real. Mm -hmm. So when we think about it that way, everyone has that creative capacity. Mm -hmm. That's the one thing that, that, that makes us really distinctive. This incredibly complex brain, the bodies, these hands that we have, uh, and our societies and social histories enable a kind of creativity. So getting together, solving the problems that, face, that we face together, collaboratively, imaginatively, is that human creative spark. And it, we find the creative spark or capacity for creativity in other organisms, just not to the extent that we do right. in humans. So I think for a lot of us, when we hear the word evolution it's still synonymous with charles darwin yeah. and synonymous yeah. with natural selection and you make you made two interesting points about that in the book is one that we've come a long way from natural selection being the thing that describes evolution 
and two, what people think natural selection is, right, right. isn't what natural selection actually is. So I was wondering if you could talk about those two things. Yeah, so uh, Charles Darwin and, I have to say, Alfred Russell Wallace, who well, you did mention, came yes, up with yes. uh, this, and Charles Darwin, who always doesn't get the credit. But no, uh, they, they both proposed the, the theory of, of evolution via natural selection of one form or another. Darwin was a brilliant scholar, an amazingly meticulous scholar, who has revolutionized the way in which we can see the world and the way we can think about the world. But a lot has happened in the last 150 years. We've actually done a lot of science. In fact, today, Darwin would not write the same book that he wrote 150 years ago. And I think that's what people need to understand. Natural selection, sort of this process by which variation in nature is filtered and shaped across generations, isn't the only game in town for evolution. There's a lot of other processes. The problem with what most people think about natural selection is they think it's about things fighting and dying and having sex. Now, there's fighting and dying and having sex in the world, but those are actually extremely rare events relative to what goes on day to day. So really, natural selection, you can almost think of it as natural filtration. Mm -hmm. There's variation in the world, there's environmental challenges, and over time, the environmental challenges shape that variation in particular ways. Mm -hmm. It might have to do with sex, it might have to do with teeth and fighting, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't necessarily have to. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you could start with what's known among scientists as the last common ancestor, or the LCA for short, between humans and chimpanzees. Approximately when and how do we see humans and human creativity start to emerge in the fossil record? So, I mean, this is, you know, you could say this is one of the versions of the greatest story ever told, right? It's this great uh, human evolutionary history. So, drop back 8 to 10 million years ago, somewhere across sub-Saharan Africa. Right. Um, we know that there were clusters of these things called hominoids. It's the, the group today that contains humans and the other apes. There were all of these different populations. You can call them different species or different clusters. We don't really know. That looked like some hodgepodge that would have given rise to gorillas, chimpanzees, and humans. So you can imagine that. Um, And so over time, there's these different lineages diverging from one another and changing. And one of those lineages gave rise to a cluster of things that we call the hominins. And the hominins between about six and four million years ago are things that you wouldn't really recognize as being human, but you could say, huh, you know, there's There's something in there. Yeah, there. yeah, 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 yeah. But by about two to three million years ago, this diverse groups of hominins have diverged into different clusters, and another one of those clusters is the first members of the genus Homo. We are Homo sapiens sapiens today. But these first members of our genus, we're not sure exactly what to call them, but we can tell they are our direct ancestors. Mm -hmm. They're the ones on the path to humanity. Mm -hmm. So over the last two, two and a half million years, we've seen that evolutionary history, those changes, those patterns, their bodies change, their brains change, their behaviors change, but most importantly, what they left behind changes. Mm-hmm. And that's where we see the evidence of creativity, yeah. the evidence of the use and control and mastery of fire, the ability to sort of build more and more complex and fascinating tools, eventually the ability to take ochres and pigments and paint their skins and their tools and their cave walls to carve figurines to build villages to create cities to change the entire planet yeah it's all this long story the problem is today we think of history as something that's very recent right so right. when, when yeah. i talk to my colleagues who are historians like oh yeah i studied the deep past 300 years ago <laughs> it's like, you, you know we have at least a good two million year story that we know a lot about uh and it's it's a real fascinating one it was it was really interesting in the book to watch you kind of 
again, with how much history and how much of our perspective as humans is compressed into the recent past. But to think about, as just as a, for instance, and you talked about this, what a significant advance and how long it likely took for our ancestors in the deep past to say, well, okay, first I made a spear out of wood. But what if I wanted, what if I could figure out a way to sharpen a rock like into a flake and put that on there? And just think about how much even that took right. to do that. Because we right. just take that for, right. oh, yeah, okay, it's a spear now. But right. it's just, yeah. it's, ama- well, it's amazing. We take iPhones for <laughs> granted. So, I mean, no, but what's really amazing, and I'm going to go back up here because you, you, you use the individual thing there. There's an there's a right. individual with a spear and that. You know what? It was always a whole group of individuals. Oh, right. And yeah. always this sort of a group, like a couple people coming up with some ideas, others coming yeah. up with other ideas. That's really been our benefit. And in there is this capacity to communicate ideas, mm-hmm. to teach and to learn. Mm-hmm. And I can't emphasize enough how important that is. Mm-hmm. But we do take for granted this amazing capacity. Over the last, you know, more than two million years ago, uh, our ancestors saw in rocks the capacity to change rocks, one of the hardest <laughs> substances out there, yeah. into something else for a new purpose. Right. That we should be blown away because over the last two million years, nothing else has developed that yeah. capacity. And that's that creativity. Yeah, it to is be that able to creativity. Look at it and see it in there. Absolutely. That- I mean, we can see in the early processes and the capacities to take a rock and make a tool, we see in that same process changed over time mm-hmm. the ability to think of uh, computer systems and develop an iPhone. Mm-hmm. One of the things that really struck me in reading the book, and you alluded to it there a minute ago, is the sheer enormity of the timeline over which our evolution as a species has played out. And I think and the reason I think it was because in reading it, you're sitting it with it for a couple hundred pages because, I mean... I have two children who love dinosaurs, and you see things thrown out like, oh, 65 million, and you hear 65 million years ago, and you're like, okay, whatever. But here we're talking about several million years, and you sit there and you think about it, and it's astounding. And then to consider that that entirety of our history is just a blip on the radar of the Earth, I point that out not only because it's really humbling, if you really look at that and say, okay, we really aren't, we're new here, but also because you know how many of the ideas we have about who or what we are as humans, what's fundamental to our nature, didn't show up until the really recent past in relative terms. And so I'm wondering if we could talk about a few of those specifically. So like one one that I think this idea that there's differences, the differences between men and women are some ancient, from the very get-go, these were two really different, different creatures. Well, I mean, so let's think about it this way. We know, right, for sexually reproducing species, there are differences within any given species in males or females, right? Now, how that pans out is actually quite different in different species. But for humans, right, we know there are some real interesting biological differences between males and females. They have to do with reproduction, and they also have to do a little bit with body size and a couple other differences. These are critically important, but these few biological differences do not come even close to helping us understand why across human societies masculine and feminine male and female as genders are so all over the place and you make so that spread. and you make that point of even saying it's it's not just a lot of just people in the general public that confuse right. sex and gender right. it's a lot of researchers oh, yeah. use them when they shouldn't be using them as synonyms absolutely and so i'm not saying it all and i get accused of this all the time of saying that men and women are the same of course we're not the same but we are the same species right. so we're we're variants on that thread and in fact in almost everything not everything but almost everything males and females overlap within populations and across the species and so we need to ask ourselves what do we want to know 
Like so many people like, well, men are from Mars and women are from Venus, so I want to know why are they different. Why don't we start with the fact that we're the same species with enormous overlap on almost everything and just a couple differences? Where mm-hmm. do those differences come from? Well, biologically, we know. But those biological differences don't help us understand uh, unequal pay in the workforce. Right. They don't help us understand why the vast majority of uh, our government in the United States is male as opposed to female. Mm-hmm. They don't help us understand why even looking across universities, even though most undergraduates are female, <laughs> most full professors are male, right? That, yeah. that, those, yeah. Even though I have some colleagues who would argue that there are brain differences between males and females that make males better leaders, they're wrong. Yeah. We know recently, uh, there's a great editorial in the New York Times just recently by uh, uh, Daphna Joel and Cordelia Fine just pointing out, we know that brains don't differ the way most people think they right. differ. So right. that's the case. If capacities aren't quite as different as we thought, we have to come up with other explanations. And those explanations are in our recent historical past. Right. How about the idea that race is significant biologically? Yeah. Well... The whole idea that there's a a European, an African, and an Asian cluster of humans that is definable biologically is false. And we could spend as much time as you wanted, and I could provide all of the genetic and evolutionary and physiological and morphological data to support that. But what's more important is that race, while biologically false, is absolutely real. It matters. For example, in the United States, and you're walking down the street, whether you're black, white, or Asian, Mm -hmm. classified that way Mm -hmm. by our racial infrastructure. There's differential treatment. There's histories of inequity and inequality. There's histories of oppression and systematic racism. So how can something be real on one hand and lived and experienced and yet not be biological? And that's where this term social construct comes in. Right. Um, and and m- most people completely misunderstand that. When I say something is a social construct, it's totally real. Right. It's created by society and implemented. Right. Therefore, it's real. And the social construct of race leads to racism, which can have real biological effects. But there is no biological difference between – there is no biological group called white, biological group called black, biological group right. called Asian. And we know that right. not just by looking at our DNA, but looking at our evolutionary histories. Right. Right? right. I mean, what do humans do? They move. They mate. They move again and mate some more. That's right. And, and it's really fascinating to look back over this long time depth. If you look back only a few hundred years, you see these differences and you think those differences are deep. Mm, no. No, no, no. Well, and I, and back, backing up a little bit with uh, the, the, the difference be, differences or lack of differences of, of many – lack of many differences between the sexes, you talked about – and when you talk about people working in groups and right. there is – how often we see in museums these depictions of the hunter-gatherer community and the man is the hunter and right. the woman is well, well, tending, well, tending the hearth. Yeah. But well, we know that in many cases where large game hunting happens, yes, males are more often, though not exclusively, hunters. And there's has to deal with some changes in upper body strength and things like that. But many societies are not large game hunters. Right. <laughs> many societies do a variety of things. We know there's no clear fossil or material evidence of any gender differences or sex differences in stone tool making. So it's not man the tool maker, it's human the tool maker. Um, We know from the past there's pretty good evidence in contemporary human bodies that both males and females are integral to human childcare and child rearing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of those reconstructions, like of, of mom at home taking care of the kids and cooking and dad out getting the money or the woolly mammoth, you know, that might characterize a few societies, but that by no means is representative of what we know about human diversity or human history. That doesn't mean that there aren't differences between males and females, right. but it does mean that imposing our sort of static 1950s notions of what the family home life should be on right. the past is problematic. 
That no. was a long, extended <laughs> version of that. No, no, that I, I, I think you articulated that really well. The other one, and we we touched on a little bit earlier, and you go into this a lot in in the book about in terms of trying to trace in the fossil record where specifically we can start to see maybe an uptick in violence. Right. And we have often this idea that gets thrown out as like, well, we're just inherently at loggerheads with right. each other. And since right. the earliest days, we've just wanted to beat each other's right. brains out. So, I mean, there's this Hobbesian notion <laughs> of we're wild at heart. And nasty, brutish and short. Nasty, <laughs> brutish and short. That's what life is. And in fact, we know that's that's the case in some cases and then not the case in others. And I think recent scholars, and I'll here I'll call out Stephen Pinker amongst others, have made this argument that sort of warfare or interpersonal violence at a large scale is characteristic of most of human history. Well, that's just not true, right? Mm-hmm. The data do not support that assertion. Now, were humans always peace-loving? Did we run throughout the last two million years holding hands through fields of daisies? Of course not. We hit each other in the head and did horrible things to one another, sometimes with frequency. Right. But large-scale, organized, intergroup lethal violence, or what we would call war today, mm-hmm. the evidence for that doesn't show up until fairly recently, last 10, 14,000 years. And even then, it isn't ubiquitous. Mm-hmm. It becomes more common as we have larger organized states, major economies, global political infrastructures, and different kinds of ideologies mm-hmm. that facilitate warfare. Mm-hmm. Two colleagues of mine, Mark Kissel and Nam Kim, just came out with a great book called Emergent Warfare. And it, it runs you through a couple million years and the comparison to our close primate cousins and says, look, obviously war is complicated. It didn't appear out of nowhere, but it is not deep in our history. It actually emerges through the capacity to be creative, to Wait, imagine, right? right? I mean, you, you, well, gotta, you have to be able to think of other humans as something non-human. You have to imagine right. that ideology to be able to kill them. And even what you, you talk about at one point, too, just... It's the flip side of humans' capacity to build peace. Is You're just collaborating towards a different end, but right. you still have to collaborate to wage war. It is not the most aggressive army that wins the battles. Right. It's the ones that care most for their comrades mm-hmm. and the ones that collaborate best. Mm-hmm. So really, cooperation wins wars, right. not aggression. Right. Uh, and that, I think that's really important to understand. Peace and war are not opposites. Mm-hmm. Right? They're both potential outcomes of this incredibly complicated, creative, imaginative sometimes wonderfully compassionate, other times horribly cruel species. Mm -hmm. It's an unfortunate reality that often faith and reason have been and still are pitted as, if you embrace one, you're not going to embrace the other. Mm -hmm. There's no overlap. And and you point out that the vast majority of theories that attempt to explain religion in the context of evolutionary history, they either discount the supernatural, they're agnostic about it, or they just kind of avoid it altogether. And I'm wondering, in taking that kind of approach to explaining religion, what do we fail to capture about humans and the human story? Yeah, so, I mean, a lot of recent attempts and and, and older attempts to explain religion or faith practices and beliefs really try to focus on their function. Like, does it help organize groups? Does it help organize groups so they can fight with others? Does it help create hierarchy uh, through threat of punishment? I mean, yeah, sure, organized religion, institutions like economies and nation states all do that. Mm-hmm. But is that why they're here? Is mm-hmm. that why we have the capacity to do them? So what, what I'm much more interested in is not sort of explaining the function of a particular religious institution, but rather trying to think with the experience of faith 
the experience of the more than the here and now. This incredible ubiquitous human capacity to live in a meaning-laden world mm -hmm. and to respond to the moral and ethical calls that living in such a world mm -hmm. creates. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really interesting to look into our past and to try to find evidence of meaning-making and then try to think how can we participate or at least give credit faith practices as ways of being human rather than trying to explain them away as some sort of functional thing. And it, I mean, and it speaks again to the idea of creativity that you have wherever our ancestors in the timeline doing this, right. that you're starting to contemplate, I'm contemplating something that's not here. Right. And regardless of whatever you want to say about that is like, that's... Yeah. That's in there and what it means to be human. And, and the human is always like that. The anthropologist Maurice Bloch has this great way of positioning it. He says that uh, most organisms, especially co socially complex organisms, are transactional. They have interactions in mm -hmm. the world. They deal with the world. But we are a particularly interesting primate in that we're not only transactional, but transcendent. For humans, it is never just the here and now. It is always the past, often the future, and frequently there's this sort of transcendent experience in our daily lives and we want to know why mm -hmm. and how and what does this mean and then this is characteristic of all humans so what's fascinating is when do we find evidence that that starts to show up it's pretty deep in our history mm -hmm. hundreds of thousands of years ago mm -hmm. in in the book you go into the biology of this but i was going to ask you just to talk about that a little bit this because it's interesting how our brain capacity starts to grow over time based on changes in uh, what made me think of it again is when you talked about the idea of child care because yeah. I know that yeah. part of so I'll, I'm not going to try and summarize just let you talk about it well it's a huge uh, <laughs> complex thing but over the last two million years we can say our brains got bigger and much more complicated and they're not going to get any bigger we're pretty much maxed out on brain size but but they are getting more complex in mm -hmm. some ways or have been over the last couple hundred thousand years but to get a bigger brain, uh, you need to grow a ton of that brain outside of the womb. And so humans came up, developed this incredible capacity to give birth to infants who need incredible care. And, and, and that enables those infants to spend enormous, 60% of our brain growth happens after birth. But we could only have that in a system that has sufficient nutritional, because our brains are really expensive, they take a lot of energy, and has incredible care. This whole idea of like, here's a mom, give her the baby, and she's in charge of it till it's 18. Okay, you know, many people today have to do that, but there's great evidence that across human evolutionary history, and even for most people today, caretaking is a communal activity. That whole notion it takes a village to raise a child is actually true. And there's no disrespect to people doing incredible jobs on their own, but our physiological systems evolve to be with one another. And so to get a big brain, you need a village. <laughs> Let you have time to develop that big brain. And so once we had these big brains, they start to get more and more complex as we do more things materially and socially. The more complex our worlds became that we had a hand in shaping, the more things are starting to happen in our brain, the more capacities we have for teaching, for learning, for thinking, for doing stuff called mental representations, right? Mm -hmm. um, so human developed sort of very complexities in the frontal lobes and other places that allowed us to, to imagine and to create in ways that are not maybe the same as other organisms. And once we get to things like language and abstract art, I mean, that's just, we're just going crazy because those things live inside us and outside yeah, us. We're just showing off. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I don't know if this will seem random to you or not, but I looked at your acknowledgments in the book, so I hope not. There's some great insights about dogs in yeah. the Creative Spark. And the, the one that really blew my mind when I first read it was, okay, we share 96% or so of our DNA with chimps, but with dogs, it's over 80% of our DNA shared with a dog. 
And, I mean, with all mammals. Yeah. I mean, we, we share like uh, 70 or 60-something percent with a rat, so... So because my wife and I are those people who share a bed with one of our dogs, right. I have to ask you at least one dog-specific question. At one point, you were talking about humans' domestication of plants and animals within right. the last 20,000 years or so. You point out that this relationship with dogs really kind of developed differently than a lot of these other animals yeah. that we domesticated. And you said the mutually developed relationship between humans and dogs is surely one of the reasons for our success as a species, which is a, is a dog lover just warmed, warmed my heart. I'm just wondering if you can talk a little bit about that relationship between humans and dogs. So a lot of people have made this argument, and uh, uh, there's there's some really good work out there on it. But some people have argued that dogs and hunting uh, helped our hunting and helped us get better, that the companionship with dogs changed our societies. You know, all those things are probably true, but they're not the driving forces. What's really fascinating is over the last 25,000, maybe even 30,000 years ago, humans and wolves started to do things in, in concert with one another in mm-hmm. particular ways. And there's a long sequence of events and I, I, I summarize it there in the book and I, I enjoy it because it's, it's a great story and it's drawing on the work of a lot of other great scholars Meg Olmer, Pat Shipman and others but this collaboration between humans and dogs has not just shaped our sort of social landscapes and each other it's also influences our microbiomes it influences mm-hmm. sort of the way in which we think about other organisms and it's not just about being pets it's about reshaping sort of the human ecology now humans everywhere didn't domesticate dogs and dogs everywhere didn't domesticate humans but it is a particularly interesting story and dogs give us insight to the world in ways that we wouldn't have on our own I enjoyed the entire book, but if anyone who's a dog lover listening, yeah. I recommend, even just for that piece of it specifically, it's really cool. There, there's also <laughs> something I think that's critical there, and this is this notion that humans, for a long time, if not forever, have been part of multi-species ecologies, mm-hmm. right? We're never alone in the world, either in our own bodies, we have all these things living in us and all over us, but more importantly, we develop these relationships, these incredibly close, deep connections to other species that are central to our existence and so for those people who do uh, share their lives with dogs as companion animals you know yeah. right that you you are in deep communication <laughs> yeah. and interaction and maybe being heavily manipulated <laughs> yeah. by this other species if there's no maybe there that's very true <laughs> the last thing i wanted to ask you and it, it's going to start with what no matter how long i do this podcast i'm going to say that it's probably going to be the most colossal understatement that i'm ever going to make and that is that Humanity is facing a lot of challenges right now. So much of the news we consume about our world and our place in it is negative. And so I'm wondering, in light of what we've talked about here, in light of what you talk about in the book, what would you hope that people would take away from having maybe that better understanding about our evolutionary history, our development, and the human the human story? First, uh, a word of warning. <laughs> Do not... Tune into the 24-hour news cycle all the time. I guarantee you, your large, complex brain will punish you for it in many, yes. many ways, as will your uh, microbiota in your gut. So so try to step away from the 24-hour news cycle if you can. So I'm, I'm incredibly hopeful about humans. We have demonstrated unbelievable capacities for destruction and cruelty, but even more so capacities and instances of compassion, of innovation, of imagination, and creativity. And I think keeping that in mind, when we think about what humans have done and do every day, in and out, I mean, everyone is looking around the world right now and thinking of all the horrors. At the same time, they go to the store and they help someone get something off a high shelf and just hand it to them without thinking, hey, I don't even know this person. 
And I just did this because I wanted to, because it made me feel good. We go and we all like line up and get on into an airplane, you know, 200 of us, and we fly for 10 hours. Do that with any other organism. You'd have 200 dead organisms in there. So we stand in lines, we collaborate, and, and we have friends and family, and we break bread with them, and we sleep with them, and we hang out. So I think sometimes we need to step back and ask, what do humans do most of the time, and where do we put most of our energy? It's in building bonds, being compassionate, being caring, being creative and kind. Not to deny there's tons of cruelty on the planet, but if we understand what our capacities are, then we can face that cruelty and try to push against it and, and make the world a better place. We know that we're messing up the planet, and we pretty much, it's pretty clear how we're doing right. it, and we've actually creatively come up with ideas how to sort of fix that. But we need the collaborative connection to really make things better. And so that would be the thing I would hope that my book provides. An understanding of what humans are capable of, of who we are, what we've done throughout most of our history, and why that's exactly what we need to be doing now. We need to collaborate, we need to imagine, we need to create, and all of that together offers incredible hope for the future of humanity. The book is The Creative Spark. I I was telling Augustine before we started recording, I just finished it. Like I said, highly recommend it. Augustine Fuentes, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. With the Sign of Knowledge is a production of the Office of the Provost at the University of Notre Dame with support from Soren's Restaurant. Our website is provost.nd.edu slash podcast. <laughs>